it's so important to be careful with your brand, you know, to make sure that you're not selling out for something that's not good for your audience. You really do have to have a fiduciary, you have to, you have a duty to your audience to treat them like you would treat people that you know, love and care about. Because if you don't, why should they care about you? Welcome to the Future Podcast. Now, before we get into this week's spirited episode, I've got a couple of announcements to share. This is the last episode of season three. We'll be taking a short break from our regularly scheduled episodes to work on some fun new ideas for the show. And while we do that, we'll have more deep dive episodes and other special things to keep your ears and minds occupied. So look out for more new episodes with new guests in the next couple of months. One last thing that we need your help with. If you like the show and can spare 60 seconds, open up the description for this episode in your favorite podcasting app and click the link to the podcast survey. It's super short and your response to it will help keep this show running. Okay, that's it for announcements. Let's dive in. Today's guest is the host of his own podcast with over 1,000 episodes under his belt. He's talked with some incredible people like Kobe Bryant, Mark Cuban, Malcolm Gladwell, and even the inspiration for Catch Me If You Can, Frank Abagnale. Now, I have to warn you, things get kind of fiery in this conversation. He and Chris talk about the seedy world of entrepreneurs and how, with his legal background, he helps people combat all these fake gurus that just seem to bombard us with ads. I swear, if I see one more teenager telling me how to make 30 grand in a day, I'm going to throw my phone out the window. They also discuss the business of podcasting and why the best thing you can do for your brand is to uphold your duty to your audience, which is exactly why I think you are really going to love this episode. So get comfortable, get ready, and please enjoy our lively conversation with Jordan Harbinger. My name is Jordan Harbinger. I'm the host of the Jordan Harbinger Show. I've been podcasting for about 14, almost 15 years. Wow. What do you talk about on your show? Man, I interview amazing people and I have them teach something to the audience generally. So I also profile anybody who I think is amazing. I try to learn their the stories, the secrets, the skills of the world's most brilliant slash to me interesting people. So had Mark Cuban on earlier uh, on the show. I've had Kobe Bryant, Malcolm Gladwell, Dennis Rodman, wow. T.I., Mike Rowe, founder of Instagram, Kevin Sistrom, Tim Ferriss, you know, the, the, the little the, people. <laughs> Some of the usual suspects, but some of the very unusual suspects, I yeah. guess. So I was a little confused, just full disclosure, because I was like, okay, I'm going to talk to Jordan. And then in my email, there's this Art of Charm. I'm looking it up, but I don't see you anywhere in there. And I see this other person with a Harbinger name. And now I'm really confused. And, and this was something that you were a part of a while back or no? So so I started the Art of Charm, yeah, mm-hmm. um, in 2006. And... I worked there. I got to be a little careful about what yep. I say because there's a lot of there's a lot of whining and complaining about me talking about the company, and I ended up suing them actually because, in part, there's a guy there who's using my last name and isn't related to me. It, there's That's this so guy. Weird. Who, it's a, it. I'll let you draw your own conclusion from that, but his name is Andrew Kazarowski, mm-hmm. and he calls himself AJ I Harbinger, that. mm-hmm. and that's a branding play, I guess, for him. And I'm, you know, it's weird. It's a weird uh, scenario. Again, I'll let you draw your own conclusion right. from that. But if I, if if you worked with somebody and then you left the company and they took over the show and then the dude was using your last name, I mean, it's just, that's it's weird. a, it's a little, Come on, yeah. Man. I won't disagree with you. That there. is weird. Okay, so first of all, you said you've been doing the podcasting game for fourteen or fifteen years. That to me is like a long time in the game. And I don't know when podcasting started, but you must be right there, like with the early pioneers, right? Yeah. So when I started podcasting in two thousand and six, the reason I did it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to start a podcast and it's going to be so fun and we're going to have this podcast. It was literally like, how do I stop burning CDs for people of my talks? Mm-hmm. And because handing out CDs and burning CDs is getting tedious. And I remember calling GoDaddy and places like that and being like, <laughs> how do I put an MP3 file on the internet? And they were like, uh, you could buy a server. And I'm like, how much is that? And they're like, we have shared servers for 
$97 a month. And if you prepay for a year, it's only $700, whatever it was. Right. So I bought a server, like a you know virtual, I don't know, shared server, whatever it is, from GoDaddy, and I was uploading MP3s via FTP, and I was like, okay, next time somebody wants to know what's going on, you go to FTP colon slash slash, <laughs> you gotta log in with this, you can get these files, and people, finally a friend of mine was like, hey, if you heard of podcasting, it's brand new, and I was like, no, and he's like, it's like a playlist of MP3 files, and people who have iTunes on their computer can download the files to iTunes uh, and put them in their iPod. And I was like, that's a great idea. Cause at the university of Michigan, a lot of people were getting iPods and iTunes was like the latest rage back mm -hmm. in 2005, six, whatever, whatever it was, everybody had their music in there. So I thought this is really cool. Now iTunes back then there weren't, there was no album art. There was no such thing as podcast artwork. Like right. you were a text, you were a text entry in a directory and I got hooked because I really liked teaching body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, influence, the things that I was teaching on my show and that I still in some measures teach on the Jordan Harbinger show. Mm -hmm. And um, I decided that I was gonna just keep giving these talks. And then I put these talks online and people would send me questions about everything from dating and relationships to salary negotiation or job hunting. And I would start giving advice in these segments and I gotta tell you, man, I was I got hooked right away because I installed this thing called Sight Meter, which I don't know how techy you are, but back in the day that was like the number of hits mm -hmm. to your website, mm -hmm. you know? And it was like, it, like this little counter that looked like the mileage counter on an old car and it was at the bottom of the site. And I would log in every day and it'd be like 24, oh my God, 24 people <laughs> came to our website today. This is amazing. <laughs> And there was this map of where everybody had come from. And mm -hmm. sure, everybody was from Ann Arbor, Michigan initially. But then it was like there were people that came from Canada. And I was like, wow, are these people hearing about it? And then it was New York and L.A. And then it was like South Africa. And I remember seeing the South Africa, Gauteng, South Africa was where the guy was, where the person was from. Mm -hmm. And I said, OK, whoever is out there listening in South Africa, I see you on our little sight meter here. Um, who are you? I'm so curious how you found us and everything like that. And this guy replied pretty much right away and said, I listened to everything you guys put out. It's so cool. Um, I, I'm a game park warden in South Africa and wow. I have an, uh, MP3 player, you know, it was like a Rio diamond or whatever those mm -hmm. things were mm -hmm. like the iPod competitors. I had one. Of and those. he's yeah, yeah. So did I. And he loaded it up with, um, our show and, and music and other stuff. And then he would drive out in his Jeep, you know, and he'd be gone two days at a time or a whole day at a time, you know, making sure giraffes were still there or something. I don't know, a game park, make sure poachers weren't right. doing stuff, I, I guess. And he, so he would just binge listen because there's no radio stations in the middle of South African game parks. So right, right. if there are there, maybe they get old fast. I don't know. So he was like a huge fan. And I thought I, I immediately got the bug because not only was it cool that I was now like officially a cool guy talk show host, you know, on <laughs> international radio, but I saw the power of the medium because I was like, wait, 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 wait. I'm a law student at the University of Michigan. I gave a talk about networking, persuasion, influence, whatever the thing was. I gave some dating advice. I put this up on a $97 a year, whatever, GoDaddy server, 30 bucks a month, whatever the hell it was, GoDaddy server. And some guy in South Africa just browsing iTunes finds us, mm -hmm. subscribes, downloads, becomes a fan. I was, I, and I was like, I got to do more of this. And that's when, funnily enough, just a, not even a year later, I met Gary Vaynerchuk. We're talking 2007. And Gary Vaynerchuk was like, come over to my office. We do these wine things. Right. And he was like, you are, you and I are on the cusp of this massive social media podcast video boom. He's like, check out this website called Vidler. I put all my videos up there. Thousands of people watch them. I was like, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. So we started streaming on Ustream TV. Joe Rogan started a podcast about that time. Gary V started posting and then Vidler went down and YouTube came up and I, I decided video production was too much work mm -hmm. and that I didn't need to do it. I wasn't showing line and I just doubled down on podcasting and I, you know, my one regret is that I didn't treat it more like more of a business from the beginning, but I also am glad that I didn't treat it like a business from the beginning because early tech, you don't know if you're doing well or not, unless you have something for sale. And we didn't really have much for sale other than some BSE sort of like life coachy stuff, you know, for dating back in the day. 
and it, we still did really well. And now I'm like, wow, I'm 40 years old. You know, I started the show when I was 26. I get to read books all day, answer fan mail, interview super smart people with no freaking pants on in my house and <laughs> make a bunch of dough doing it and then go play with my 10 month old son. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's an incredible opportunity and I'm, I'm super thankful for it. And I, I think I've like answered your question and 10 other questions in this long rant. Here, no, that was so fantastic. That. Oh, there's so much there. So there's a lot here for me to, to dive deeper into. And I love that you say you get to talk to people and try to teach something or learn something from them. Yeah, we'll get into that. So how many episodes into your podcast did this guy from uh, South Africa reach out and say, hey, I'm listening to you or this is cool? Dude, I, I literally think it was probably like eight episodes in. Oh, wow. Okay. And I'm on I'm on my episodes are numbered differently because I started the show over again mm -hmm. um, or a different show, not the show. I started a show over again. Uh, in 2018. So I'm on 364, but I left my old show at episode 700. So I, I've got well over a thousand shows in the can. And this guy reached out easily before episode 10. Mm. So wow. yeah, it was early. It was an early thing where I really got a taste of it. And even if it was, look, even if I'm wrong and it was like episode 15, it still was so early that I remember sitting in this this apartment that wasn't even mine that I only lived in for like a few weeks. So it had to be pretty early in the game. And that was good juice because now you start something and it's like you, you've got to wait a long time to get traction. People right. give up. That was a hobby. I was a lawyer or I was becoming a lawyer. I was mm -hmm. in law school. So what was cool about it was there was no pressure, you know, and I, I think there's some beauty in that for an artist or a creator but also it would have been really easy to get discouraged, except it wasn't because I didn't care. It was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. I don't need this to succeed. There were no good podcast metrics. So, so what if I couldn't check them? You know, didn't matter. It was just totally irrelevant. You're bringing up so many things here. People are listening to this and they're like, wait, what is the CD-ROM? Uh, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of open So you're, you're early in on all this stuff. And it's really interesting that it was kind of just a... a fulfilled the need for you. You gave a talk and you're like, how else can I do this? Because it's it's uh, killing me to burn these CDs. And here's another thing. And one thing leads you to another thing. And then you're introduced to all these people who are kind of on the cusp of doing this. And we've seen this happen before. The people who are early in on tech, who stick it out, who like put in the work, they become the giants, right? Now, yeah. okay, I'm, people are going to listen to this. and like, you're a very different kind of guest than most of the guests that I have on. You have this energy. You have this, I, this is not an insult. Like you have a radio voice. Like you're ready. You're like bursting with energy. Was this always who you were or did you grow into becoming this person? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I grew into this. So so it's easy for somebody in, in, in any profession to say, well, I always wanted to do X, Y, Z. So, so when people... Uh, who are less skilled interviewers than yourself, they say, oh, what'd you want to be when you grow up? I would say, oh, well, when I was really young, eight, nine, 10, whatever, I wanted to be a DJ on the radio because I thought it would be cool to talk to everyone. And they're like, you achieved your dream. And it's like, well, okay. But what really happened was, yeah, I wanted to be a DJ on the radio along with probably everything else. And, you know, a policeman and an astronaut and an army man or whatever we called them back then and a doctor and a da 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 and then I became a freaking finance attorney. Talk about a dream killer. <laughs> and then during law school, the, AKA the process to become said finance attorney, which was mm -hmm. never a dream job. It was, what do you do when you can't get a job at Best Buy selling freaking Britney Spears CDs? <laughs> right. You know, you, you, you go and you go to law school because you damn well, damn well better. So I, I really focused a lot on, uh, on just getting a job, but I did this as a hobby because I was really interested in it. And then I, it, but I, if you listen to early stuff, like I don't even know how early it gets, but there are things where people will say, oh man, your interview with so-and-so was so interesting. And I'll go and listen to it and say like, oh, what? I don't even remember that. Let me go listen to this interview of this person who like maybe passed away or like was so old and are they worth having on the show again? And I'll listen and I'll go, eh, not my best work. Hmm. You know, if I go back far enough, I'm sure it's cringe. But if I go back three, four years, it's not up to snuff. And mm -hmm. e even if I have a repeat guest, like I had Jocko Willink on the show several times, uh, if you know who Jocko yep. is. And I got another call from him and he's like, hey, you want to do another show? And I was like, great. Let me just dig out my old show prep notes and I'll see what I covered and what I didn't cover. And I'll improve on those and we'll do like a, re a reboot and I'll add to it. 
Well, I go back and I'm looking back and I go, huh, for a first interview, I guess I just didn't use notes. That's a weird strategy. Mm -hmm. That uh, doesn't seem like a good strategy at all. And then I go to, our, to my second interview with Jocko and I go, oh, okay, here are my notes. And I read them and I go, oh my God, these are not great. These are really, really <laughs> basic. There is nothing that interesting in here. Mm -hmm. um, what was I thinking? And then I go to my third Jocko interview and I look at the notes and I go, okay, these are good, but there were a lot of missed opportunities. So I can sort of chart my growth that way. And it is, it is funny because I can only imagine that something I did 10 years ago is just unlistenable, mm -hmm. you know? I'm glad you bring this up because a lot of people, they don't understand that this, this life that we live, it's a continual education, the self-development and a growth. And you, you were doing that because maybe three years ago, you were the best version of you, but today you're even three years better than that. And just keep looking forward into the future as you stick through this. So a lot of the young people are like, oh, you know, they're, this didn't work out for me, Chris. I, tr I tried it and I did everything you said. And I look at you. So you posted three things. You made two videos. That's it. That's your effort. Yeah. People yeah. understand that. You've done over a thousand episodes. Uh, if I was doing my math right, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah, crazy, yeah. man. Exactly. And look, I, I take voice lessons every single day, wow. not every single day, five days a week, maybe four days a week, depending on my teacher's availability. Um, you don't have to do that. Mm. Just for those who are, people who are like, what? Oh my God, I can't do that. You don't have to do that. I just started it a few months ago. It's not something I've been doing for a decade. It's not the reason my voice sounds the way it does. It's part of the reason, but it's not the entire reason. Um, you don't need a great voice to be in radio. If you don't believe me, go listen to This American Life and listen to Ira Glass talk into the microphone. He's a brilliant guy. He's got the <laughs> got terrible voice. Um, you know, there's a lot of really popular talk show hosts that have awful voice. You don't need any particular um, talent. If you do have talent, that's great. I, I hope that talented people get into the business. You don't really need it. Like, I'm not especially talented, I don't think. Uh, a lot of what you hear is the the results of a lot of work mm -hmm. on presenting cadence diction note taking reading faster memorizing stuff like all all the things you hear in the the interviews on the Jordan Harbinger show are, are a result of that um but you're right to your point i i was in the new york times last year and the article was about podcasting and you know how it's kind of getting played out and some some successful podcasters do this and some unsuccessful po podcasters do that in the head of the article, there was a, a girl who had started, she was younger. That's why I say girl instead of woman. I guess she's still technically an adult woman, so excuse me for that. And she started a podcast and she said, yeah, we originally thought we were gonna be huge. We did six episodes and they were recorded on an iPhone on a table in the library and they were awful and we put the episode up and we got 13 downloads and then we quit because we weren't. Yeah hitting it big and everyone sort of tortured her online and made fun of her and everything. And it was, it was really kind of awful, mm -hmm. uh, it, it for her, but it sort of was the point of the article, right? Like there was me as the counterpoint where it was, this guy's been doing this for 12 years or 13 years or however long it had been in the article. And he's got this home set up and he re does all this work and he's doing this and he's getting, I think at the time, like 3 million, 4 million downloads a month, something like that. And that was the contrast. And it's really easy for people to look at guys like me who've been doing this for so long and go, aha, all I have to do is be consistent, but I'll do it faster because I know what I'm doing with internet marketing. It's just not how it works. Not with podcasting anyway. Right. Well, I want to take a couple of steps back. You were, you, you, this is brilliant. It's almost like you're, you're like feeding me this thing. You mentioned Ira Glass. Here's what I've noticed. And I want to get your opinion on this because you've been doing this for way longer than we have. That there are very famous, popular podcasts, and they're very different. They're they're scripted, they're written, they're performed, re-recorded, and dubbed over, and sound effects, and they sound really good mm -hmm. until you hear them speak live. They're stuttering, they're stammering, they're finding their words, and sometimes they're incoherent. And then there are the other kinds of podcasts where it's conversational, like what we're having right now, it's totally unscripted, and they're able to string together cohesive thoughts and make powerful statements without it ever being written. There's a distinction there, and there's a, there's a style for everybody out there. If you're a really good writer, and you're not that confident in speaking spontaneously and off the cuff, that there's one path. And then there's there's people like you. I'm just curious if you if you have an opinion or take on that. Yeah. You know, first of all, I have to say, like, I just sort of did a crappy imitation of Ira Glass's voice in its it's tongue in cheek. Obviously, yeah. he doesn't sound like that. But what I mean by that is the dude's a genius. Mm -hmm. So he can talk however he wants and make a great show. 
And I want to highlight that for people because that show and many other shows like it have full-time staffs of 13, 14, 28 people. And I, you think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. Um, they, they release once a week, but they can only do 37 episodes a year because there's a hundred hours of research, right? There's 50 hours of writing. There's 20 hours of rewriting. There's eight hours of recording or, you know, five hours of recording. There's 28 hours of editing. Then there's another hour and a half of recording more pickups. Then there's sound design and music is added. And then there's the final spit polish. There's show notes. There's the art that someone draws and puts on the episode. Like there's all those things that go into that. And that's a different product than a guy who sits down and reads 20 news articles. Uh, this isn't what my show is, but I know there are shows like this. A, a guy who sits down, reads 20 tech news articles, puts them all in, and then makes fun of them in a daily show. And there's shows like that, right? right. I'm somewhere in the middle where my show is edited, but what it's if you were sitting in the room with me and then you heard the edited version, you would be missing uh, a bathroom break, a couple of sneezes from the guest and myself, uh, maybe a flub or a th conversation thread that kind of just goes nowhere or sounds stupid. Mm -hmm. And then everything else is the exact same. Mm -hmm. And then there's a there's a, an intro and a show close put on the front and the end of the show. And that's pretty much it, right? And commercials are added. Ad advertising is added later in post. So I'm in the middle there. It's like, it's not heavily produced, but it's also not recorded in somebody's car and then uploaded directly to the hosting service. And I don't love those shows, I'll be honest. There's a lot of shows like that now where it's like, two guys in a garage talking about Boston sports. That's cool if it's a hobby, but I don't really need to listen to that. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't want to produce that. You know, I'm running a business. It has to be great for the listener. And I, I really try to keep that in mind with every show that I create. If Even if I'm really interested and it's just not interesting for other folks, I, I don't really want to do an episode like that. Mm -hmm. That's good that you make that distinction. And that's, there's probably a proliferation of those types of podcasts and it's getting harder and harder to stand out. But the people who are putting in the good work, who do the research, whatever style it is, I, I hope that they do rise to the top. Now, you mentioned a couple of times the business. Is podcasting your business? And can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, my podcasting is my business, right? So this is my full-time job. It's my full-time job. My wife works with me. I've got a couple of contractors, one that writes the show notes, another one that helps uh, answer and collect the advice. Every Friday we give advice based on questions we get in the inbox. So I have somebody that goes through that inbox, helps me structure the answers, puts the questions and my answer notes in a document and then reads the questions for me on Friday. So he helps with that. I've got, of course, somebody who sort of maintains the website. He's also the guy that writes the show notes. Um, my wife schedules the shows, books the guests, makes sure that I am in the right place in the right time. And then I've got an engineer who goes through every episode with a fine tooth comb and gets rid of the siren that was in the background and the guest and the cat meow that happened at some point during the show and got rid of the fan noise in the background and does all the editing and in, in the the mastering of the audio. And that's it, man. That's it. I mean, there are other sort of periphery folks that work on the show. We have transcripts for every episode and they're done by machine, but we have somebody who is a native or sorry, non-native speaker of English who's a professional transcriptionist. And she goes through and makes sure that everything is, is right mm -hmm. because it's really easy for a machine to get something wrong. And if she doesn't understand what it is, she highlights it. And then, you know, what my wife or someone else will go through and be like, ah, that's what that is. Mm. So we have that, we have those folks, but, um, you know, people who work on our animations for social media and things like that, these are all part-time folks. So it actually ends up being pretty profitable over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are a lot of part-timers that, that work here. I would say we have a crew of six, but again, only two of us are full-time and, and that's just me and my, my wife. Uh, and even that's debatable because we have a 10 month old. So she's mostly just doing work where she can and trying to outsource other things. Mm -hmm. Okay. How, how does one in your position make money doing podcasting? Can you let us into your little financial world about how you could sustain yourself doing this and supporting a, a part-time staff of six people. How do you make money off doing podcasting? Yeah, well, it's, it's about the advertising, right? Okay. It's about the advertisements. Um, and that is the, that's, I, I'm very careful of that just okay. because I don't want to put a ton of ads in a show. 
I want to approve every sponsor. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that the audience is getting a good experience. But yeah, the the way, the primary way that I make money, and of course I do speaking gigs and occasionally I'll sell something that like a speaking gig or an, an experience for my audience. We recently all, not all, of course, many of us didn't go. Uh, we went to a prison and volunteered in a prison and taught the prisoners a few things and worked with them on like resume building for when they uh, were getting out. Mm-hmm. It, it was a volunteer program and a lot of my audience came with me. But aside from those sort of one-off experiences that are mostly for charity, it's about advertising. And so every show has sponsors and I only take products and services that I believe in or that I think are good. I don't, you know, you have to be careful because your brand is attached to that. And the advertisers come through my network, which sells those sponsors and takes a cut of the proceeds. So it's nice to have that because I don't really have to worry about selling ads, billing them, collecting the revenue, like all that stuff is is handled for me. Mm-hmm. Is this, when you said through your network, is this another company that you own and manage or is this through a third party? No, it's a third party. Mm-hmm. And I, I, my network is podcast one and they have like 300 shows mm-hmm. on the network itself. And so th- they sell huge blocks of advertising and those blocks of advertising go on, let's say me, Adam Carolla, Shaquille O'Neal, Dr. Drew, uh, Stone Cold, Steve Austin, Mike Tyson, you know, like in a bunch of other shows. So we'll, we'll all advertise, I don't know, whatever mattress, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And, but I'm, I'm a pain when it comes to this stuff because I'm very picky with the advertisers and I make them send me the product. I try the product. So it's, it's like, you won't hear all the same ads on our show on the Jordan Harbinger show as you do on a lot of other shows. Sure. Some, there's some overlap, but I can't tell you how many times my, my network has just been like, why don't you do this? And I'm like, I don't like, you know, supplements that make big promises or mm-hmm. something like that. Or like I tried the mattress and I thought it was uncomfortable. So I don't like that brand, you know, stuff like that, I think is, it makes me a huge pain. But I got to tell you, that is, it's so important to be careful with your brand, you know, to make sure that you're not selling out for something that's not good for your audience. You really do have to have a fiduciary, you have to, you have a duty to your audience to treat them like you would treat people that you know, love and care about. Right. Because if you don't, why should they care about you? You know, if you're just hawking like, hey, buy this penis pill that's going to make your whatever, you know, do things better. That's no good. You know, it's no good. And they're like, oh, you're just going to shill like, hey, buy this hair loss shampoo. It's like, no, you know, buy this supplement that says it's going to make you taller. There's no evidence for it. But who cares? We're going to give you 20 percent. I just I won't do it. You know, I won't do it. I'm playing the long game, I think, is what I'm trying to say here. It sounds like I mean, you have to have integrity. That's what it what it's going to come through because this is your show. It's a very intimate relationship you have with your audience. They show up for you to hear your insights and your questions and to see how you pull out information from your guests. And if you sell something just to make a quick buck, which I think a lot of people do get into that trap, then all of a sudden the power of their brand and people start to question like, do I, do I trust this person now? What's going on mm-hmm. here? And exactly. it's good you're holding on to that. Well, you talk about ads as the, it, that's the primary way that you make money, right? Yeah, it, it is. Um, I used to do like training courses and blah, right. blah, blah. But what I found was that a lot of, I'm just going to put it out there bluntly, a lot of like scammy pieces of crap started putting out training courses and it was like how to get rich or like how to pick up chicks or whatever. And I was like, oh, we're not like that. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you you, you can't really, it's kind of like saying I'm the good guy drug dealer. I only sell marijuana. Like they're good. still, you're still a freaking drug dealer, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and like, I don't necessarily agree with that sentiment, of course, but a lot of people will. So I got sick of being like, well, I teach people how to do this and online business that. And then there's like 8,000 other people that teach it, but like have never built a business. And I'm like, no, 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 I've actually built this. I've actually done this. It actually works. And then I just got so sick of trying to defend that, that I was like, you know what? I don't love teaching this anymore. I don't love competing with scammers. I don't like being painted as such. I'm just going to go and do interviews with really smart, cool people because that's what I like best about the business anyway. And that was hard to do because I I turned down, in a way, 80% of my income, but it was like 100% of my headache, you know? Mm-hmm. And not only that, it was also like 90% of my work. So 
yes, we're making less money as a company because we don't do that, but I don't have to have coaches and instructors and an office and a sales team and a da, 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 da. So I got rid of all of that dead weight and baggage and I got rid of two like totally bonehead business partners mm-hmm. and I was able to get rid of a lot of what I would say dead weight and baggage in my own life. And that was really good for me because now we're more profitable than ever. We might only make 20% of the income that we did before, but like our profit went from 1% to 80%. Right. So it, or 60%. So it, it really was a game changer. And it's funny. Cause if you look at our revenue sheet, it's like, Whoa, we made so much less money. And then it's like, Oh, but we made so much more profit, you know, like, like a hundred times the amount mm-hmm. uh, of profit or, or at least uh, close to it in some years. So you really do have to look at profit first when you run a business. Um, I hang out with a lot of really inspiring folks and I should say like very successful men and women. And one of the things I've noticed is there'll be some guy who's just killing it in the, let's say auto sales. And he's, yeah, we did $16 million last year and da, 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 da. But then you get like three or four whiskeys deep, you know, on a, on a trip or something on his boat, you find out he's made no money for the past five years. He's got a ton of debt. So he's got a company that's really, really doing well, but his balance sheet, he's been in the red and he's got almost no hope for getting out, trying to find investors to keep the lights on it. And I'm like, I'll, I'll take my profitable low maintenance business, lifestyle business any day over that. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. Hey, Ben Burns from the future here. If you don't recognize my voice, you might know me from our YouTube channel as the friendly guy with the big beard. Yep, that's me. Listen, the future's mission is to teach a billion creatives how to make money doing what they love without feeling gross about it. And let's be honest, historically, we creative types are great at producing the work, but not so great at running the business, especially when it comes to things like sales, marketing, and money. I know, personally, I used to struggle with all of those. Now, fortunately for you though, we have a slew of courses and products designed specifically to help you run your business better. These are tools like the complete case study and the perfect proposal. These things are there to help you attract new clients and then wow them with a thorough and professional presentation. Now, you can go even deeper with one of our business courses like project management, how to find clients, and the Intensive Business Bootcamp. Check out all of our courses and products about running a creative business by visiting thefuture.com slash business. Welcome back to our conversation with Jordan Harbinger. Uh, that's a really valuable business lesson because from afar, companies can look super healthy and and. I think some entrepreneurs kind of send the wrong signal by driving fancy cars or having gigantic homes and and showing you a very flashy lifestyle when in fact they've been in in the red and they're spending investor money foolishly and kind of um, without a lot of ethics because they're burning other people's money. And it's not so much about what you make, it's what you keep. And you got rid of some people that weren't right for you and you got out of a business that I think we're we're just being flooded with with these kind of and there's a term for it. They, they people are calling them contrepreneurs, when they're selling you some get something fast scheme, and they're bringing yeah, a lot of people I, into. Yeah, I that love that universe. term. Um, that's uh, Mike Winnett came up with that, right? Contrepreneur. I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's an interesting guy. I, I like Mike. That's an interesting term, and it's so true. Th- these entrepreneurs, these guys that. It's a, it's like a fake guru scam. My, right. my buddy who goes by CoffeeZilla on YouTube, yeah. uh, you know him? I know him, yep. Yeah, so he makes these videos, for those people who don't know, he makes these videos where he'll blow up somebody's scam and be like, I did the legwork and I found out this is a rented Lambo and a mm-hmm. house that he doesn't own and like there's no way that this works that way and this is actually impossible and this other thing is illegal and blah, blah, blah. And it's funny to see this because the, the internet space really is full of like just fraudulent scammers ever, even more so than ever. And you, you see these like 16 year old kids that are right. like, yeah, I just closed a $30,000 sale. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, you didn't. You're just lying. Mm-hmm. You're just a con artist. And, uh, I, I've for that reason. And among the other reasons that I mentioned before, 
I'm just so glad that I don't sell anything other than advertising because people will complain about the advertising business model, but I'm telling you, like, if people are willing to pay me with their attention because my interviews are really good, the stories that we get on the Jordan Harbinger show are really good, then they'll support our sponsors. I'm totally cool with that. I don't want to have to tell somebody, I don't want to have to hype up something in order to make a living limited time only start now be in my super secret inner circle mastermind. Like I just, that, that whole, I, the idea of doing that is just so exhausting that even thinking about it is exhausting. And addition, mm. in addition to that, how do you sleep at night when you're the person that's ripping off like 18 year old kids and 25 year olds and telling them that they're going to make all this money online when you, when you're not making that money online other than ripping people off, selling your class. So I, I, don't want anything to do with that space. And, you know, I was never in that space, obviously, but even the suspicion of being uh, two standard derivatives away from that space was no good. Yeah. I think that's, that's the story of capitalism, that as long as there are people who are desperate, to, who need to get out of whatever situation there is, there will be people who will take advantage of that and they just yep. don't really care. I imagine mm -hmm. them sleeping really well at night because they're not bound by any moral or ethic guideline in their life. And you talked about integrity. It's not there, obviously, because they know this is just smoke and mirrors. If you dig deeper, as, as CoffeeZilla does, it's it's all there and it's just it's incredible like with just a little bit of due diligence it all falls apart really really fast mm -hmm. mm. yeah that that that's and, and i know this right so i look at this and i go huh how how strange that you just do a little bit of diligence and this falls apart what that tells me is you, their core customer your core customer if you're a entrepreneur mm -hmm. is somebody who is so inexperienced that they don't know how to do any sort of research and diligence. They're the kind of like born yesterday kind of customer. Well, okay, there are plenty of adults that are probably like that, but here's the problem. Most of your customers, if you are doing that, are gonna be teenage kids. And that makes it even more despicable because that means you're knowingly going after somebody who's young, can't afford to waste money on something. You're selling them a lie so that you can run around in a rented Lamborghini and go on vacation. It's it's really despicable. So me, CoffeeZilla, and a handful, like make Mike Win and a handful of these other folks, we do a lot of blowing up of these guys. You know, I'll on the on the Jordan Harbinger show, I recently released an episode where I debunk conspiracy theories. Um, not quite the same thing. I debunked that stupid bullcrap uh, pandemic movie. That was another conspiracy garbage that I debunked. But I also speak pretty plainly when it comes to these kinds of entrepreneur folks, because I, I look at my audience like extended family. You know, I'm again, I'm a former attorney. I'm still technically an attorney. So I have what I consider to be a fiduciary duty to the listener. This is somebody who trusts me. They expect me to have their best, best interest in mind. So no, I'm not going to have a supplement scammer advertise on the show. But in addition, I'm going to say, hey, look out for this. This is happening out there. This is how the business model works. In fact, CoffeeZilla was on the show recently. The episode's not out yet, but we did an interview about this exact thing because I'm like, I need everybody to know how this business model works. I also uh, speak the truth about multi-level marketing and how those are not profitable, mm -hmm. except for, of course, the people at the top, because those are just built on, you're preying on people who don't know any better. You're lying to them, and you're trying to get them to stop thinking about the fact that they're losing money by getting them excited. And then when they finally say, Jesus, I can't do this, then MLMs, scams of all kinds, the fallback is to blame the person for not working hard enough, not getting it, uh, not going all in, not being a team player, whatever sort of pejorative bullcrap that they throw on you. And it's no different than somebody selling you a diet that would never work and then saying, oh, you haven't lost any weight. It's because you're not working hard enough. You, that person would be a despicable scammer. And yet that's what we see from a lot of these multi-level marketing uh, and other entrepreneur scams. And so I feel very strongly about that kind of thing. And I, I spend a lot of time, um, warning people about them, uh, helping friends of mine who, who get threatened by them with light lifting legal work. You know, they'll go, Oh my gosh, Jordan, I just got a cease and desist from such and such company or such and such entrepreneur. And I'll go, Oh, well, they're expecting you to be scared and fold. Let's respond with something really sharp 
and then I'll write the letter and I'll, I'll say, you have to run this by your own lawyer because I can't, I'm not going to represent you in court. I'm a New York attorney, you know, and I'm not a litigator. And, and the lawyer will go, yeah, this looks good. And so instead of paying $2,000 for the response letter, they, you know, they pay their lawyer 50 bucks to take a quick look at it and mail it out. And it's funny because you'd be surprised. A lot of these entrepreneurs, they'll send a cease and desist letter, which is basically exactly what it sounds like if people don't know. And it says, you know, you stop uh, saying that my client is a entrepreneur. You know, Chris Doe, you take your podcast offline right now and you never do this. And then we write back and we say, we want to see evidence of this, because if you keep sending this, this is going to be harassment. We're actually thinking about countersuing you. Um, if you decide to move this forward, here's what our claims are going to be. We will not cease and desist. In fact, we assert furthermore that this is this and that and the other thing. And also right. we're thinking about talking to the FTC with the Federal Trade Commission here in the United States. And they go, oh, shoot, I wasn't expecting that. I thought this was some punk from YouTube. You never hear from them again. <laughs> well, I have to suspect it's a boilerplate letter that is designed to scare off kids. And people absolutely who financial situation may be kind of in jeopardy. So that's going to scare away a lot of people. And people yep. don't have friends like you who can fight back for them. So they, they, they buckle, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a shame. But I don't like bullies. Mm -hmm. And I've, I fight bullies whether it's the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and I do lots of episodes about that, or a contrapreneur, or, you know, frickin' Vladimir Putin. You know, I'm, right. I, I can't do a whole lot against the CCP or Vladimir Putin. Uh, contrapreneurs, though, their worst enemy is a lawyer with a conscience <laughs> and, and a platform, for that matter. Um, you know, all I can do about Putin and the CCP is expose some of their BS. Uh, I do that on, this, on the show as well, uh, to, to some degree. Mm-hmm. So a question I have for you is with you and, and a couple other people out there who are getting the word out, is it making a difference? Because I look back in the, the 80s, and there was like guys like Tuan Vu and everybody's selling. It's the same package over and over again. They're selling you. And these are the telltale signals. If they are supposedly claiming to sell you a secret on how to do something that they never actually made money in, that's your first sign. If they Such tell a red you, flag. If they tell yeah. you, you need no talent, no money down. This is the easy way. And here's how you're going to make millions without doing any work. They're telling you a lie. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, think think about this. The the primary selling point on a lot of this entrepreneur stuff is you don't need any money. You don't need any talent. Okay, then what exactly is the barrier to entry? And why are you teaching me this system? If if any warm body can do it, why don't you just pay? somebody five bucks an hour that lives in another country to do this for you all day and all night and become right. a billionaire. Why are you selling a course for a thousand bucks to teach some schmo how to do it? And the answer is always, I just really care about people. Cool. Then teach us for free. Oh, well, I can't do that because you know, something, 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 you get what you receive from the universe. They start to fall back on like this metaphysical BS or, well, I've got to have my team compensated. I'm like, it's a digital product. This could be $4 and you'd still be profiting three ninety five. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? After you deliver all the pieces together and set up, you know, it's just unbelievable at scale. So it's garbage. It's absolute lies. And you're right. Whenever someone's like, I'll teach you how to build an online business. If their online business is teaching other people how to build an online business, they've never actually built an online business other than the one that you're going to have to build, which is teaching other people how to build an online business. So you got to be really careful. If you're taking a program where the person is teaching you how to teach other people, you're in a pyramid scheme. You're in essentially a multi-level marketing scheme because you take a business course from somebody about selling people a business course. And guess what? Your product's a business course. So now people buy that and then they what become coaches. So you have a coach who coaches coaches who coaches coaches uh, and their coach is a coach and their pe people they coach are also coaches. Come on, you're running out of people on earth at this point, you know, after like seven degrees of separation here, you're running out of people on the, on planet earth to, to sell your crap to. And that's why you see a lack of success, just like you would with any other Ponzi scheme or multi-level marketing. You just run out of people at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Ooh, okay, that was pretty yeah. fiery. Let's switch gears sure. a little bit here. Okay, let's talk about relationships. I want to talk about you have guests on your show, some very famous, powerful, successful people. Outside of the podcast, what's your relationship with them in the real world? Is there one? How does that work? Oh, with the guests on the show? Mm -hmm. it, it really depends. So recently, you know, we had Mark Cuban on. I I know Mark a little bit. We don't hang out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He's, 
He's the billionaire guy from Shark Tank. Um, but like I can email him and he'll get back to me, which is kind of cool. Always a good feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, Mick West, who I had on recently to debunk conspiracy theories. You know, I know I know him. Uh, he's a great guy for critical thinking and clear thinking. Gary Kasparov, the chess champion, who's also uh, very much anti-Putin. You know, these are guys that I can get an email response from. It's a little tricky sometimes. These are very busy people on the international stage, but it really does vary. Like I, I occasionally will have a friend of mine on, uh, Robin Dreek, episode 357. He was the head of the FBI behavioral uh, analysis program. And he came on the show. I've known him for years and years and taught a class with him a, a million years ago. Uh, on social engineering. Uh, but it really depends. You know, um, I've had Frank Abagnale, the inspiration for Catch Me If You Can, Kobe Bryant, Malcolm Gladwell, Dennis Rodman, uh, that those kinds of folks. Like, look, I, I, are we tight? Not really, mm-hmm. but I can reach him if I need to. But other folks like T.I., uh, the rapper T.I. Mm-hmm. Tip Harris, I can get a hold of him all the time. I talk to him all the time. Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs, I uh, talk with him pretty regularly, him and his team. So it really varies Um, But like after the a lot of podcasters think like, oh, after I do this interview with Malcolm Gladwell, we're going to like go out to lunch every week. And it's just not true. It's just not true. (laughs) You'll be lucky if you can get them back on your show when they have another book out. You know, that's right. People are busy. They have their own lives. Um, You do make a lot of great relationships when you do have a podcast. That much is certain. Mm -hmm. However, are you BFF with everyone? Certainly not. Right. What, what I found was really interesting and an unexpected benefit to creating content is there's somebody that you admire, that you look up to, that you've read their books or watched their videos or attended a seminar or something like that. And then you have them on the show and then they get to know who you are and a relationship forms. Not always, but sometimes. And some of the authors that I admire from afar are now friends who text me and it's kind of like, oh, this is kind of wild. And it's pretty cool to be able to do that. Yeah, I think it's there's something incredible about developing any relationship, whether it's with a fan or with a, a show guest. You know, there's something really incredible about that bringing people together. I, I think it's I think that's one of the fun things about podcasting is like getting it's access. You know, it's it's always been access. And but you have to be careful as an interviewer not to do not to do things, episodes, I should say, not to do episodes because you want access and you want to become best friends with, you know, the people that you have on the show. Because I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this in the right way. What happens is you end up doing a bad interview if you're concerned about how you're perceived by the guest. Does this matter? Does this make sense? Not matter. It makes sense. I hope. Yes. Um, like if I'm on with T.I. or Mark Cuban or Dennis Rodman, I don't want to be like, oh, remember that time that you did that awesome thing? That was so cool, man. And they're like, yeah, thanks, bro. And then I'm like, hey, are you hungry? Let's have lunch after this. I mean, that's that's not good. You should be able to have someone on and go, here's the thing I, I think I disagree with from your work. Blah, 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 blah. Defend this. You know, tell me why this is. Tell me why I'm wrong. And that's not a great way to make friends. It doesn't mean your guest storms out of the interview. But it certainly doesn't. And, and hopefully at the end, they respect you and they, they had a good time. But then having a good time and thinking, wow, that guy was really nice to me is not my concern. Again, going back to the fiduciary duty that I have to the listener and keeping the listener first in my mind here, that really is more important. So if I have someone on like Dennis Rodman and I go, what's with the crazy? And he goes, you know, he starts laughing and says, well, you know, I did this and this and this and this and this. And a lot of this is for attention. You don't ask that if you're trying to become best friends with a guy. You go like, I just love everything you do. But I want the listener to come away with something. I want to ask the questions that the listeners have. You know, I want to find out what's going on in someone's head. I don't care if at the end they think I'm cool. Like real talk, we're not going to be best friends most likely afterwards. And if I click with the show guest, that's great, but it has to be a side effect of the interview, not not the reason I'm doing it in the first place. Mm-hmm. You're, you're talking about a couple of different things, I think. One is, do you have a hidden agenda? Are you trying to get something after this and so you're not really present to the conversation? Or if you come across as a super geeky fan, there's not going to be a lot of knowledge gained here. And you have to be able to push into places where there's going to be a little friction. And then through mm-hmm. that really interesting dialogue and conversation comes out. And you're, you're saying... 
You have a responsibility to everybody that's tuning in. They've given you an hour of their time. Make it valuable for them. That's great advice, by the way. Something that we don't hear a lot. So I, I want to get into your show prep. Sure. What, what do you do? How do you get ready for your shows? Get me into the nitty gritty. So the first thing that I do, let's I'll pick a real guest because okay. it does vary. Mm-hmm. So let's say that I have Frank Abagnale on from Catch Me If You Can. You ever see that movie? Yeah, I loved it. So Frank was doing a media and his thing was, oh, I've got this new podcast about scams or something. And I said, great, let's do an episode. What most journalists do is they Google the person they look at a couple interviews, they read the Wikipedia or something like that, and then they walk in and they do their 15-minute bit. What I do is I will look and see if they have a book. So with Frank Abagnale, I read the whole book. It's called Catch Me If You Can. I read the whole book. Uh, I rewatched the movie. I took notes on what matched and what didn't and asked any questions I had about that. I listened to the full season of his new podcast. I, I don't think I made it through the whole thing, but I, I listened to like several episodes of the new season of his show, which is about catching scammers. Um, I looked at a bunch of his past interviews. I looked at a bunch of, I listened to a bunch of his past interviews on other podcasts. And then I looked at his Wikipedia. I looked at any magazine features he had. I found people that knew him and I found those people via social media, you know, LinkedIn, mutual connections, whatever you want to call it. And from there, I gathered all my notes. I dump them in a, a Google Doc. Uh, and usually, I mean, candidly, I take the notes in the Google Doc as I go along. I don't have them anywhere else first m- most of the time. I dump them in that Google Doc. I take that Google Doc. And then the day before the show, I go into that Google Doc. I spend an hour or so reorganizing all the notes into a converse. Well, first thing I do, actually, let me back up. The first thing I do is I go through all the notes. I look I, and read everything and I ask questions about my own notes. Like, oh, he did this. Wonder what that was like. All right, I'm gonna do a little question there. Oh, this happened. Wait, what was the difference between this and the other thing? Oh, how do we do this specific process? What are the steps? Okay, great. Then I go through the whole thing, which is now four or five pages of notes generally for an hour long interview. I go through that and I rearrange the order that the notes and questions and ideas come in so that I think I have kind of a rough show flow and then during the show, I go ahead and, and and go down the list of ideas, but it's not a pre-scripted list of questions. The conversation goes where the conversation goes, but I'm so familiar with those four or five pages of notes that if something naturally leads into another point, I simply skip to that part in the notes and I'm using my iPad generally, so I highlight things in yellow when I'm done with them and everything else is either not highlighted it's highlighted in green if I think it's important and it's highlighted in gray or D, what is it, unhighlighted, non-lighted, unlighted. Uh, when it's it's in gray, if I think, uh, this isn't the greatest, most interesting thing, but if I run out of ideas or it's naturally gonna segue, I'll use this. So I'm constantly working out of this living document uh, with with the interview. And so sometimes I, I'll, I'll, when I don't film all my interviews for YouTube, but occasionally I do, especially if it's a big name. And I, I put one up with Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer, and I got some comments that were like, Jordan's being so rude to this guy. Look at him, look at his iPad. And it's like, the reason the interview is good is because I'm able to look at my notes. The reason, th- it'll be funny because people say, this is a great interview, but I just wish you would have you know, not looked at your iPad so much. And it's like, the reason this isn't a crappy surface level interview is because I've got six, seven pages of notes here and I'm able to go deep into someone's life and track the conversation. You know, this is the reason. And I, I talk to journalists about this and they, I say, why doesn't every journalist do this? And they go, dude, I've got 13 interviews this week. Half of them are with like pet store owners in the Miami Dade County area. What am I going to do for prep? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. That's what happens when you get assigned stories you don't care about. And you have a boatload of work for a journal, uh, for a journal or a magazine. Um, because with podcasts, we can afford to spend a week preparing for one guest or 20 hours you know, preparing for one guest, we can afford to do that because we own the media. When you're writing a one page fluff piece for news, news magazines, you just got to get that thing out before lunch and move on with your life, you know? Right. It's very different. I mean, the amount that you just described to me, was just like, oh my God. So it makes sense that this is what you do and you take what you do very seriously. So the, I, I, 
hats off to you. I bow to you on this one because that is an incredible amount of work. And if you want to be able to do what Jordan is, has done and to be able to get to this level, it's going to require that level of preparation and work. Now, I, I have some thoughts on this because I have prepared for guests before and I've not prepared at all. And it's kind of interesting how, how both go. Sometimes they both go well and sometimes they both go horribly. And I remember something. And Larry King, a late, late night show host for CNN, was famous or infamous for not preparing for his guests at all. And at first when I heard that, I'm like, Larry, do your job. That's not professional. But here's the thing. And I, I learned this through doing conference calls with potential clients, that sometimes in preparing too much, I get stuck in like, oh, I needed to ask question 14 and number two and I'm not really even listening anymore, or they'll say something incredible that's going to help me win the job, and then I just go on to question number seven, like I'm going off a checklist. So once I did this enough, I started to get into this place where I, give me the high-level stuff that I need to know, I would tell my team, brief me on this, this and that. Okay, I'm ready. I'm just going to listen. If there are specific questions, Johnny, you answer, Mary, you answer, and Tina, you do that part, but I'm just going to talk to the client. And then I just lose myself in the conversation, whatever they say. If it's interesting, I go with that way. If it's not, I stop the conversation and move a different direction. And I find that sometimes after you do it long enough that you start to learn how to be a great conversationalist. Like if you're meeting somebody for the very first time, you don't have the ability and you kind of just like, what's on your mind? And then if they're good, we, we have a great conversation. So that's that's the danger of not preparing or, over, or under preparing. But it sounds like you put a ton of work into this. Yeah, I do put a ton of work into it. Um, I put a lot of work into it. And the, here's the thing with Larry King. Like, I like yeah. Larry, but it's very clear he doesn't prepare. Yeah. And I think that that probably worked really well in, like, the 80s and 90s because he was a good conversationalist. And let's be real, a lot of journalists were really not good conversationalists. They had their 10 questions, and they were like, well, I'm going to ask these. And they came across stilted. Mm -hmm. uh, but now a lot of journalists and interviewers have great personality and they throw a lot of personality into the interviews. I, I will say right now with Larry King, and again, nothing but respect, respect to Larry King. He's given me a lot of great advice that was very effective in me building my brand in the Jordan Harbinger show and coming up with my own style for interviewing. But I mean, there are some famous Larry King kind of outtakes where he What's the famous one with Seinfeld? He, yes, yeah, Jerry Seinfeld. Have you seen this? Jerry Seinfeld goes on the show. I think I know what you're talking about, yes. Yeah, Jerry Seinfeld goes on the show and says, hey, Larry, good to see you again. And Larry goes, you had the top show on television. Seinfeld ran for eight years or whatever. And he goes, what was it like when it got canceled? And Jerry Seinfeld goes, do you even prepare for this? You canceled? What are you talking about? It's the most popular show on television. It's not canceled. And then he just went off on him because it was like, did you even look up anything? And he's kind of half joking, but he's actually not totally joking because he does think it's ridiculous that Larry King thought Seinfeld got canceled. Right. Um, and he's done, he's had those gaffes quite a few times in the course of his long running show and I feel bad because the show was live. You can't edit anything out, really. You can't reel anything back in. But I asked Larry King about his prep process, and he said, usually nothing, or he will receive a sheet of paper, basically like a printout uh, for a one-pager on who the person is, and he'll read it in the car on the way to, well, at the time, CNN. Right. And I said, you're just reading whatever your assistant puts in an email. And he's like, yeah. And then I use curiosity to get the rest. And on its face, that sounds amazing. But then if you hear an, inter an interview with Larry King and then you hear an interview um, with the same guest that Larry King had with somebody who prepares like me, it it's just not even close. I'm, I'm starting from where Larry would have been in three hours. You know what I mean? Right. In terms right. of conversational yep. depth. I know that exact moment that you're talking about. That's what I was referring to because that was like Larry's not paying attention. And it seems like, what are we doing? It's just a, a ticket and you pull and the next person sits on the chair and you just kind of go through that part. And I think there is a balance. And you said something that I want to point out to, to the, our guests who are listening is this, is that you prep and then you kind of have a way of like staying in the conversation in the pocket and not being dictated by the questions because that's sometimes the over preparation can do that to you. And you get really stiff. Yes, there is an element of practice that is required to get this down smooth. You don't want to be locked into your notes and flow, 
but the way to do that is to use your notes as much as you can, but not worry about whether you get to everything. Think about what your next question is going to be, but always let that question be ready to let that question take a back seat to wherever the conversation is going, as long as there's value in it for the audience. And that's really the moral of the whole thing. It's always got to have value for your audience. And that's what I try and do on every episode of the Jordan Harbinger show. Great. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger, and you are listening to The Future. Thanks so much for joining us in this episode. If you're new to The Future and want to know more about our educational mission, visit thefuture.com. You'll find more podcast episodes, hundreds of YouTube videos, and a growing collection of online courses and products covering design and business. Oh, and we spell The Future with no E. The Future Podcast is hosted by Christo and produced by me, Greg Gunn. This episode was mixed and edited by Anthony Barrow, with intro music by Adam Sanborn. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. It's a tremendous help in getting our message out there. And, you know, it lets us know what you like. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.